Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. It's almost like if we all have in our lives, you know, the weight of the past and the weight of the present and the weight of the future, the people who dump too much weight onto the future forget then that that all of us still need the beauty and the importance of the now. And also we need to be able to look back into our past and think, uh, like little breadcrumbs, where was hope and beauty already there? Like, I love being able to look through a, a photo book, especially when I'm scared or things are just really hard. I love being able to look into old photos and think, um, I don't have to be hopeful in this moment. Like, look at all this beauty. Like, that stuff is already mine. What a gift. That's Kate Bowler. Six years ago, at the age of 35, Kate was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer and given months to live. She was one of our first guests on Clear and Vivid three years ago, and her clear-eyed optimism in the face of uncertainty was thrilling. But she's an avowed enemy of mindless positivity, the kind peddled in self-help books. She's as inspiring, buoyant, and funny as ever, both in her new book, No Cure for Being Human, as well as in our conversation. This is so great to be talking with you again. I, oh don't, I had such a good time the first time we talked. <laughs> this, uh, it feels like a homecoming. This is so nice. And I didn't realize that you had been a historian in your study of the gospel of prosperity. Yeah, I was just a, just a pile of footnotes waiting for someone to ask the question, is anybody interested in the history of the prosperity gospel? What is it? Clear yeah. me up on what that is. It's a, a certain kind of uh, faith that imagines that if you speak positively and you think positively, that you can have health and wealth and happiness. But you have to put to work uh, a power that God gives you to make it so. So I don't mean to be disrespectful, but according to what I hear, most of the world believes, has faith, and most of the world is not rich and healthy. Right. So <laughs> how, how does that work? <laughs> right. Right. You're like, demonstrably, Kate, comma, how, how, would, this, how would this be proven? It's, um, it is absolutely a gospel of show and tell where people 
imagine that uh, when they put this faith to work, that they will be able to see results, um, that you that it might be everything from um, like you smile and the boss notices you and you get that raise to an improved attitude, which creates family togetherness. So I think part of the tricky part about measuring the prosperity gospel and its effectiveness is that people tend to define prosperity in different and often very personal ways. So mm. we might see from the outside that it is mostly preached by the sort of televangelist caricature with a private jet and just uh, plain seat stuffed with money. But I think for the average churchgoer in this movement, they're looking for small miracles that make up a life. And it, it wouldn't necessarily be obvious from the outside exactly what that would look like. So it could be proven proven out for yeah. some people depending on what their expectations are. Yes, that's right. And according to a last, um, uh, it's always good to have a friend who's a sociologist. And I <laughs> I have uh, Mark Chaves from the National Congregation Study, and he put a question about this belief on his last survey, just because mm. we wondered, is this really just a, a really minority view that only a particular kind of person in this movement has? And he found that something like 25% of respondents said that, yes, they believed that their faith would yield material benefit to them. So I think it's far more widespread than we even imagine. So in your book, you compare that and find elements of that in self-help books. Yeah. And is it all self-help books that, you, that you've got in your sites? Yes, I am a... I am a self-help research monster. I think, <laughs> yeah, it it began with an interest in the prosperity gospel because one way of thinking about that is just what we would call like an inflated anthropology, like a very high estimation of what people can do. And it turns out that that's, of course, not just limited to people who think God wants to give them money, but it's in fact a staple of this enormous American genre, which is designed to convince you that you— especially you, Alan, but like you in general can achieve all things if it's just broken down into the right steps and you have the right attitude. So even though it's not true in my in my understanding of it and, and your understanding of it too, I take it, even though it, it, it's not true, is it harmful? Right. Does it hurt us or does it just get us through a hard time? I mean, sometimes— um, it sort of depends on what we imagine the benefits of that sort of optimism are. Like, does it, for some, look a lot like agency, like a reason to try, a reason to act? And sometimes we only jump if we think there's going to be something there to catch us on the other side. So sometimes it looks like a, a certain kind of buoyancy that could be very positive. It helps people take risk. It helps people um, imagine more for themselves. But it can be very harmful when you then imagine that the most important things about your life are entirely a result of your choices. And mm. like sometimes that's true. Sometimes we there's an addiction or we pick the wrong person or we like we can single it back to a, a set of choices. But for the most part, our lives are largely determined by the things that happen to us. The the person who passes, the the diagnosis, the the housing law that made us live one place or another. So we're such a, when we're hyper-individualist thinkers, we sometimes can be caught in the kind of shame and um, embarrassment cycle of forgetting that we're not just self-made. 
you feel so strongly about this. There's a scene in your book that just <laughs> touching and hilarious at the same time. <laughs> I'm talking about where you after yeah, your surgery. I just can tell. So it's you, very embarrassing because I did sort of lose my mind for a, for a moment. <laughs> tell, tell, tell that story so everybody can enjoy yes. it along with me. Well, so I I was fresh from this news that I very suddenly had stage four cancer. And I am reeling from feeling like I'd had this life and now this life that I loved was gone. Um, But the hospital doesn't let you go home unless you know how to walk. And so you have to practice walking. (laughs) And so (laughs) at some point I like made it to the door and then I made it down the hallway. And then when no one was looking, I realized that there was an elevator and I could just be set free in the, in in the, on the first floor. So I was like wheeling, I'm in my cotton hospital gown, just, I tried to double knot at the back. I did my best. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) in the lobby, (laughs) just (laughs) wheeling my little IV bag. And I see this hospital gift shop. And I had been there a million times before. Like, I'm a professor at the university next door. And I normally study these self help books like, um, you know, your best life now, every day of Friday, like that kind of thing. And normally I study it, I hope, with a kind of just benevolent detachment, a compassionate observation. But not that day. I saw this enormous display of Joel Osteen, the televangelist, prosperity preacher who had best life now books on display. And I just lost my mind. I went in with my little ivy pole and just started taking apart the display, which in my honestly, in my mind, I think what I imagined would happen was I would remove all of the books very helpfully on the floor, and then I could provide a list of suggestions of like what they might buy instead. And instead, this poor bookstore manager is like, ma'am, ma'am, like a hostage situation. <laughs> and I had to try very hard to explain, like, I'm not a random person. I'm, in fact, very weirdly an expert on this, but also I promise I work here. But I swear to you, like I I said very, it was so dramatic. I was like, you can't sell this to me. (laughs) I was like, oh. So, um, and then by the time I I took my next lap, the the next day, it had been reassembled with (laughs) with a new set of Joel Osteen books. So you never never really win. (laughs) This attempt to stay positive all the time. Yeah. It sounds to me impossible Mm -hmm. because life is uncertain. Yes. But what does somebody do if they don't tolerate uncertainty very well? Right. How do you get to be familiar with uncertainty? That sounds like exactly the existential question that, that fuels this. I mean, man, in the United States, we really do crowd everybody over to one side of the emotional spectrum. And we do it with social science and we do it with uh i mean every all all the happiness studies all the you know cheap paperbacks and target that yell choose joy i mean we're really describing all kinds of positivity that that we imagine to be resilience and courage all masked as or like swapped out for the word happiness and i think you're absolutely right if you're if you're if you're so busy trying to manufacture these positive emotions, it can be very difficult to face, to have a little bit more honesty about the kinds of fears we really all have about the fact that our lives are 
are made of such delicate material. We really are living into uncertain futures. It must be hard to think of these things and write about them and talk about them without without edging into a kind of self-help <laughs> posture in, in, the, in the first place. Six, I'm just going to offer you six easy steps, though, Alan, six <laughs> easy steps to mastering uncertainty. And to, I mean, you're, it just, it creates its own parody almost no, immediately. No, I'm, I'm serious. You don't, do, do, you, do you worry about that? Oh, absolutely. I think trying to dismantle self-help is one of the intellectually hardest things I'm, I, I've ever tried to do. It's it's much easier to say, um, well, let me deconstruct an aggressive and toxic optimism and positivity. It feels very different to be in the hope and honesty game, to say, how do we be people of courage, people who live it, into uncertain futures, <laughs> without then being like, let me just show you how. <laughs> yeah, <a> <laughs> right, right. Raising the question, you said you have an interesting notion in your book, hope for the future feels like a kind of arsenic. Yes. In what way? <laughs> well, when I was first uh, diagnosed and people, well-meaning, lovely, not all of them, some of them lovely people, <laughs> oh. <laughs> are rushing to explain. And in the explanation, I mean, one of the common sets of explanations, if you're religious and I'm you know, very Jesus-y, was that, um, that, that was, was offering a different kind of certainty, that heaven will be wonderful and that God is just closing doors and opening windows and that it's not actually a tragedy, it's an opportunity, and I just haven't learned the lesson yet. Mm. And all of those kinds of um, attempts to be hopeful really did feel poisonous because— I mean, at the time, what I really needed was to say, um, hey, I'm a really sick 35-year-old with a toddler, and I'm terrified that I can't live long enough for him to remember me. Like, how do I live with that kind of uncertainty and still have, like, beauty and meaning and truth in my life? But the truth is I'm unbelievably scared right now. And so, like, hope, I think, was swapped out for kind of an aggressive futurism. And the truth is I needed people to help me— not just live into a future that I couldn't know, but to live more meaningfully now. So hoping about the future is, in a way, it can be avoiding the work on the present. That's the The awareness of the present, the connections that you have in the present. Huh? Yeah, I think that's a perfect description. It's almost like if we all have in our lives you know, the weight of the past and the weight of the present and the weight of the future, the people who dump too much weight onto the future forget then that that all of us still need the, the beauty and the importance of the now. And also we need to be able to look back into our past and think uh, like little breadcrumbs, where was hope and beauty already there? Like I love being able to look through a, a photo book, especially when I'm scared or things are just really hard. I love being able to look into old photos and think, um, I don't have to be hopeful in this moment. Like, look at all this beauty. Like, that stuff is already mine. What a gift. You remind me of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor and philosopher, and kind of self-helper with himself, because he wrote to himself all these aphorisms to help him get through. And, and, I, and I love he, when he said, very much like what you're saying now, past is the past. We're not going to be here for the future. 
if you go out far enough. All we really have is now. Yeah. I was very tempted by that. Um, and I tried to talk my other divinity school theological pastory friends into it. And I was like, look, guys, why do we need hope? Can't we just think that the present is <laughs> is full of all we need? And then I'll never forget my friend Warren, who's a really wonderful Augustine scholar. And he's like, oh, no, Kate, we're not, sto- <laughs> we're not Stoics. Christians have to live into the future. And I was like, well, I, I don't know how, like when the future is a cliff. And I, I think that's, <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's been one of the big questions of like how do you, how do you have these long form like you know, as a person of faith, I, I do believe there's like a beautiful tomorrow where there's like an anchor dropped in the future and and that God is pulling us toward it, but at the same time, I need like a lot more honesty if I'm going to be able to live right now. So so I, this is so interesting to me. Not, you're not only now a person of faith, you have a lifetime behind you yeah. of that faith. And you believe that after death you'll live on in some way? I mean, in exactly the way I hope I will, Ellen. I, I have plans. I have a house picked out. I've got a better body. I'm just joking. I, I Yeah, I mean— <laughs> I didn't know. Did, I, did you get to move up in the real estate? I didn't yes, know that. Exactly. I have so many, so many dreams. I, uh, I think that's yeah. I mean, I think this, this, the story of, of faith is that is that, is that someday that that God saves the world. But but that has to be in my mind radically distinguished from the idea that that means that my life will work out in the way that I hope. That my hopes and dreams and bucket lists will be checked off and fulfilled. So I I believe in a divine someday, but I, I try not to create too many opinions about exactly how or, or when or why. When we come back from our break, Kate Boulder tells me how she manages her life after living with her cancer for over six years now and how she gets as much fun and reward from hosting her own podcast as I do for mine. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about Patreon.com slash Clear and Vivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. 
Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kate Bowler and the experimental therapy that in all probability saved her life. I want to ask you about this immunotherapy drug. What, what, that's a big change in your life, apparently. Tell me about that. Yeah, I was, um, I was put on a clinical trial very early on to test out an immunotherapy drug. And immunotherapy is kind of the Wild West of cancer treatment because it has a very short history, all kinds of promise and lots of money poured into it. And I had a very strong, uh, pot, like a very positive response to the drug uh, quite quickly. The, the, the difficulty has always been um, it, with cancer care, it's almost like you get two totally different paradigms is that people have decades of experience with chemo almost no experience with immunotherapy. And they certainly don't know what to do if, as in my case, the tumors shrink, but they're still there. And mm. so are they are they dead? Did it work? We can still see it. Are you in remission? Are you cured? I just immediately went into this um, gray zone. So I, for that reason, kind of imagined myself as having cancer as a chronic condition, but as something that may or may not be life-limiting. So you don't know. Yeah. Is there any, are there tests later that may reveal, may give you more information on this? I spent, as you can imagine with my personality, I, I spent a long time trying to get as much information as possible about yeah. what people like me, what their, you know, did they choose surgery? If they did surgery, what did they find with that tissue? That kind of thing. But um, the clinical trial system is so purposefully opaque that really only a few researchers have that information and they do not share it, regardless of how many times. Um, an, a hoping-to-be middle-aged Canadian asks them or sends them a very interested email. So I've really uh, been struggling with the not knowing and the fact that it sort of, it felt like for a long time with the crisis of the illness that I sort of had to build a house right at the edge of the cliff and live there. And now I feel like I've been able to take a couple steps back, but I still kind of have to you know, dig in. You don't want to walk too far outside to get the paper. <laughs> what if I need to get back? <laughs> I have to get yeah. the paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And who wants to visit? Come on. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> During this trial, were you in that position of not knowing whether you had the real drug or a placebo? In my case, everybody got it, but they also gave us a very aggressive regimen that they wouldn't given they wouldn't give a typical cancer patient so i remember the first time someone said well how many rounds of chemo are you going to have and i remember saying 
oh, no, I, I have to do this forever. I mean, I was on so many dozens and dozens of rounds. And so the the sort of perpetuity of it was the emotionally hard part was that if you if you stop or you don't respond, then you get kicked out of the trial and then you know you're beginning you're beginning a decline. So it was it was the never endingness of it that was kind of the the that was the gauntlet. This is the immunotherapy drug? Yeah, immunotherapy plus chemotherapy. You get both I got both I at the see. same time. Yeah. Because when we first met, you told me about how you had to go, I think, to Atlanta. Yeah, that's exactly and, right. And that you you would get a, a chemotherapy dose. Yeah. Every month, and you would only know that you were going to be alive month by month. Yeah, I used to get two or three month horizons, and then if I passed the next scan, then I would get to get another sixty or ninety days. I did that for years. What do you go through? How, how can you describe what you go through? Mm. Because I've had a situation where I had in the middle of the night an emergency operation. Yeah, where I knew I had maybe two hours to live if mm. I didn't have the operation and if it didn't go right. Yeah. But I didn't have more than a few hours to think about it. Mm. When you are when you have two or three months ahead of you, how do you not think about it all day long every day? And how do you not now now we're getting into self help again. How do yeah, you, yeah, yeah. how did no. you avoid getting yeah. dragged under by that? Right. Because you can't be too focused on a past that is gone, this version of life that you can't get back to. And you can't really participate in the casual futurism of the way that we almost all small talk. What do you want to do this summer? How's your Christmas plans looking? Like just mm. the way we all relate. And I had to lock myself in to the time I had with a lot more, I don't know, honestly, I made rules. I made rules for myself about how to do it because I, I knew what that, were they? <laughs> um, no important conversations before or after like 8 a.m. 8 p.m. Because if you start being, what if I, <laughs> then, then you're, you're off a cliff. I mean, just <laughs> good, good, goodbye. Then it's just going to be weepy and you won't make any sense anyway. So I made uh, all important conversations had to be <laughs> had during daytime hours. That helped with a lot of the creeping sense of despair. I, because it was so hard for a long time, I would wake up and I would forget that I was likely going to die that year. And then you have to mm -hmm. remember all over again and try to, I guess it was the feeling like you have to remind yourself like, oh, this really is me. This really is my life. This is my body. This is my, so I, um, and then I, I put myself in a nice routine, which is um, like, I needed to be in the mix. Like I'm a mom. I needed to do some hardcore momming. Like I, I needed to be useful or else I felt uh, sort of professionally tragic, which felt like a huge waste of time. <laughs> and then uh, I guess one of the the weirdest first decisions I made was um, like, do you keep working or or do you have sort of like the reverse of the lottery question? Like, what would you do if you want a million dollars? And for me, it was like, what do you would you do if you think you're going to die this year? And do you you know, just quit everything and spend all your time at home and or do puzzles. And, and it took me a bit to realize that uh, for some reason that the joy of my heart was in writing hilariously specific historical books <laughs> with many, many footnotes. <laughs> and that 
I just wasn't that there's like, there's a person we become by doing. And even if only a couple hundred people are going to read that book, which is how it is with historians, that as my friend um, just very lovingly said, like, look, even if the worst happens, like the people who love you, they can find you there. Like they can find you in the things that you loved. And so, yeah, the first couple of years, I, I wrote a book. I had people that I was going to interview for the book stop by the chemotherapy infusion room <laughs> and I interviewed them. Mm. And it was, it was a source of tremendous uh, fulfillment to know that I wasn't just entirely eclipsed by something I didn't choose. But No Cure for Being Human, the book that's out now, is far from a boringly specific book <laughs> about you. history. It couldn't be more human and Aww. more f- emotional and felt specific in the best possible way. Thanks. Did you did you wonder if the if that was an effort worth taking, facing the end of everything as you were? Yeah, I guess. At first, I had been working on all these sorts of cliches you find out when your life explodes and there's a tragedy, like the unfairness, why questions. But mm. with No Cure, I wanted to chew through the the stories we get about how to spend our time and what if, like, is there an enoughness feeling? Like, what if you do master your inbox and live your passion and, you know, <laughs> jump out of an airplane? And, like, how do all these stories we get about how to really live how do they help us spend our time? So this book was kind of an attempt to figure out with um, how do you move forward when you can't just move on? How do you how do you love what you already have, but you know you still need to learn to try? And yeah, it's just how do we live like this? It sounds an awful lot like mindfulness. Mm. Is that a bad thing to say? No. I When you say anything, I'm just going to say yes, because I love you and I affirm all of your choices. Um, I think it certainly there's intentionality. One of the problem with, with the sort of popular use of mindfulness is, though, is that it has another solution to the problem of finitude. It sort of, it leads us to imagine in many cases, and this is probably just because of the way it's commodified, is that if we're mindful enough that we won't feel like we're going to starve to death. We want life so much. And yeah. I just don't think yeah. that's true. Like, I don't think desire is the enemy. Like, when I think about my googly-eyed, smells-like-strawberries kid, there's never going to be a world in which I'm so intentional and mindful that when I look at them, I won't feel like I'm starving to death because love makes us hungry. Life makes us hungry. And I think the want is part of what makes us awake and alive. And I want to say that is still all good because um, because there's just love is something there's just never going to be enough of. I've heard you talk about the idea that individualism is something that only gets you so far. And the awareness that we're part of a, a group. Yeah. Is kind of necessary. I, I, I feel that it's necessary to your well being. Yeah. In facing this, this monumental uncertainty that you do. Yeah. 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 I, I think, it, like, if the problem is in this model of the, the, the good 
individualist, the good American, the solo cowboy bootstrapper. I mean, this of this high anthropology. I think if you take it down a few notches, what we end up getting is an account of fragility, an account of our need for structural solutions to our problem, but mostly like an interdependence is this feeling that we're really best when we're a big group project. And I I picture it in my own life as, um, it's, it's so dumb, but remember like early medieval architecture where they realized that they just couldn't build buildings very high unless they did something different to the walls? They're like, gosh, <laughs> yeah. this, this whole thing's going to fall in. <laughs> so they created these flying buttresses, right, to create right. external scaffolding. And most of the hard things I've done or tried to do in the last couple of years have mostly just been because other people decided to just flying buttress my life. And all then all of a sudden, the walls can be higher. There's, oh, look, somebody's helping take care of my kid. Oh, look, there's food in the freezer. So what if somebody wants to be a buttress <laughs> and goes about it in a, an understandable but clumsy way? Yeah. And and instead of helping you, help makes you feel a little pushed down, used, objectified. What's the, what is there a principle that the rest of us can follow to not do that to you and others who are in this situation? I guess, I mean, most of the mistakes we make with people we love and pain are, I guess, come out of a place where we imagine we're going to solve it or rescue it. Uh. You know, when there's probably, when people have, most most problems we have really are unsolvable. They're, they're grief or loss or things that kind of just came undone in the foundations. And so when people can, uh, I mean, you're so good at this. It's it's the gift of presence. It's the way you turn your face toward people. It is, and everybody really needs to reread your book for all skills on empathy and and like attentive question asking. But just knowing that all little things help, dumb presence, food, um, showing up to do favors, all these things will add up to build up a life, but but nothing can possibly explain or solve the tragedies that that unmake us. You make me wonder what it's like for you day by day. You've You've moved back a couple of feet from the precipice, but do you still have the sense that the precipice is out there, yeah. challenging you, threatening you? Yeah. Yeah, like I can feel the upward draft of it a bit. Yeah. You, you yeah. have this wonderful capacity for coming up with, <laughs> on the spot, the right word. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I, uh, I, I do feel uh, less, um, less durable than I was before. And sometimes I notice it, especially at like, childhood birthday parties where everybody just has that wonderful ability to assume, you know, their kid's future and next year and plans, plans, plans. And um, I think that, I mean, there's, there's always, and this is why there are so few lessons in tragedy, but there are always gifts. Like you get these moments of crystalline clarity and beauty. Like we see that every time we fall in love with a friend or a person or a moment is 
we get to see things as they are just for a second. It's it's like it's transcendence. And then it goes away because <laughs> we're dumb. And do, you, do you get that? Do you get that feeling of connection and support on your podcast? Because yeah. you have a moment there where you can really talk to someone in a personal way. Is the podcast therapeutic for you in any way? Yeah, I think. Well, it's so funny. When we first met, that was one of my very first episodes. So I hope you read the subplot of, I cannot believe you came on my very first. <laughs> Baby, why? Why? We need to ask those questions. It's so much fun. You get to have your brain explode with somebody else's, the power, the sheer force of somebody else's mind for an yeah. hour. Yeah, it's, it is, it has been one of the most uh, intellectually exciting things I've ever gotten to do. As an academic, I've been overly gilded. You know what I mean? I've been like, I've been entrenched too much in one discipline. And so the podcast offers me a chance to actually read widely about a set of themes that are the same themes I care about. Loneliness, fear, interdependence, our delicate, ridiculous lives. How do we love? How do we have meaning but not lessons? So it's been, I mean, it's been an opportunity to read and think through the same themes that that if I just stayed in my own historical discipline, I never would have done. I have to ask you one question, and it has to do with bucket lists in a way. <laughs> the, the closest my wife and I ever come to talking about a bucket list yeah. is she has this fascination with the idea that before we go, we should clean our closets. <laughs> Very thoughtful. <laughs> it is. It all. It comes out of thoughtfulness with regard to our children who shouldn't have to clean out the closets <laughs> <They're not gonna> themselves. <laughs> but it, so I have funny. to tell you, it, it comes. Up, it comes up so often. It's a little annoying. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I guess the annoyance won't go away until I actually clean out a damn closet. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> it's it's very it's very considerate, uh, and it is. It is true that all of us want to never be a burden to the people we love. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what love is if, if it isn't sort of beautiful moments and then being incredibly burdensome. I think that that's pretty much the definition. <laughs> well, I, unfortunately, we're reaching the end of our time. But if you remember, we end every show with seven quick questions. Oh, yeah. Ah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. I'm, okay, good. I'm here's, nervous. Here's, the, here's the first mm -hmm. one. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, how empathy works. I mean, is it is it like is it is it in our is it in our evolutionary process? Why does it feel so much like every like we build a bridge outside of ourselves? Like, gosh, explain empathy. Good. Next. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> you start with, um, what an interesting argument. And then you just say the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> but, but first you flatter with them with how interesting yeah. they are. That's right, know. especially if it's an academic. you got to start there. <laughs> what's, the, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? What is heaven like? Oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I haven't died yet, but... I'll, I'll, keep I'll get back in touch with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, I I always do the arm touch, 
And I'm like, oh, thank you so much. What a wonderful, and then some kind of summary. And then I always, I'm like, I'm just going to grab a, and then I just head for the buffet table every time. (laughs) I love the arm touch. (laughs) Yeah, the arm touch is key. It creates sort of like a, yeah, it's like a shield. It's a loving shield. So let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. Yeah. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? Oh, I love um I love people's weird hobbies and I I I love like what I yeah, I think I love just saying um is there anything you do for no reason? And that's usually that's usually that, that's a great one. That, I never heard that before. <laughs> it's more fun I thought than you were going to say. Do? Tell me, tell me something you do that's weird. I think that would. Be... <laughs> oh no, that could I... <laughs> go in an interesting place. <laughs> now, that's a good one. Okay, next one, next to last. What gives you confidence? When people are yelling, um, <laughs> I really love it when my friends yell true things. They just say it in the scariest voice. They're like, "This is a great idea." <laughs> And I, I honestly, I get so much energy out of my friend's righteous indignation about life. I honestly, I wish I could bottle it. And that gives you confidence. Oh, I could do anything if someone yells at me. If someone who loves me <laughs> yells at me, done. I'm Rocky. Yeah. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Oh, well, he was a carpenter from... Ge- I'm just joking. Um, I... <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I guess, gosh, now I want a better answer. Uh, but for me, it's it's almost always the last uh, book I read because I then become obsessed for the next two weeks. And right now I'm reading this beautiful book called Hard Landings about um, the parents of kids with autism and how we love people when we can't organize a world around them. And I'm going to think about that for every second for the next month, I'm sure. That's a really interesting point to go out on. It kind of encapsulates our whole conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate. It was really fun talking to you again. Ellen, you're my very favorite. Thank you. Uh, thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Kate Bowler is Associate Professor of the History of Christianity in North America at Duke Divinity School. She's the author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved and her new book, No Cure for Being Human. She also hosts the podcast, Everything Happens. Be sure to check back to when Kate and I first met for the Clear and Vivid episode in July of 2018. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Bianca Jones-Marlin. She's a professor of neuroscience at Columbia University, and she explores the fascinating idea that the experiences of one generation can be passed on to the next, not through a change in genes themselves, but in the way genes are read or expressed. I'm a neuroscientist by training, and I'm interested in the emotional and cognitive aspects that can be passed on through our generations. It's beautiful to think of an experience somehow gaining a message that's so specific that kids are prepared, they're primed for survival. And that's really what the, what the what my lab focuses on, what the Marlin Lab focuses on, how parents prepare their offspring for survival. Bianca Jones-Marlin, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.